Tēnā koutou, no mai, hi to mai, welcome to Q&A, I'm Jack Tame. Tonight, the highly anticipated final report into the Ports of Auckland's downtown operation says the port is no longer economically or environmentally viable and should move north. And it gives the ports and their owners just over a year to agree on a plan. Well, if you come down Queen Street and turn left, it's really magic. And if you turn right, it's a car yard, an ugly industrial estate and a wall of empty boxes. The tomorrow's schools review is complete. Tonight we can reveal how our education system is going to change. Plus, the head of the youth court tells us that easy access to online pornography is leading to violent sexual offending, though kids don't have to be searching for porn to be confronted by it. They were on a streaming site, they were on a game, they were on YouTube, they, and then there was an advert that asked them to click through. So they weren't necessarily even looking for any sexual content. Plus, glyphosate is the active ingredient in weed killers such as Roundup. But is it also in our food? We have been lulled into believing are safe and needed by agriculture. That's simply not the case. That story soon, but first to the ports. Auckland Council may have little over a year to make a deal to start moving its port operations to Whangarei's North Port, or the government could step in. It would mean the Auckland site, currently using 77 hectares of prime waterfront space in our biggest city, could expand across a space 180 hectares near Whangarei. This recommendation, along with others, comes from the final report of the independent working group set up to review freight and logistics in the Upper North Island. Those findings went to ministers over the weekend, but Q&A has obtained exclusive details. The working group's chair, Wayne Brown, is with us this evening. Tēnā koe, welcome to Q&A. Right. I should point out it wasn't you that gave us those details, but, but much of the final report is in line with the interim reports you have released. There was one line that stuck out to me. Uh, you say that the ports of Auckland are no longer economically or environmentally viable. What do you mean by that? What I mean is that as a business, it's, a, it's paying risably low returns to its owner. I think the next year they're proposing to pay a dividend of $8.5 million for the privilege of occupying $6,000 million worth of land and, uh, and contributing heavily to um, port-generated truck congestion in the city. Now, um, that's, a, that's a very, very low return. Uh, similar businesses, and I'm in that field, um, only need about $60 million worth of assets to make $8.5 million, not 6000 So I, 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 note, I note that the dividends for next year are projected at $8.7 million, 9.4 for 2021. They increase then to $64 million. But, but I see your point. This is very, very valuable land. And let's have a quick look at what you are proposing um, as part of this report. First of all, the Waitamata Harbour in central Auckland would be reserved for cruise ships, for commuter ferries and for recreational boaties. But you would need some significant infrastructure if the Port of Auckland operations were to move north. So have a, let's have a quick look at what infrastructure has been proposed. As well as a massive road upgrade, a new 18-kilometre rail line would be built to connect Northport to the main trunk line between Auckland and Northland. That line would have to be significantly upgraded in order to handle the freight. Then, northwest of Auckland, a new freight terminal would be established to organise distribution. In an optional scenario, a new stretch of line would also be built through West Auckland so that no big freight trains would have to come to the Auckland CBD. How much does it cost? Well, um... The, you've got to compare that with the cost of doing nothing. 
The cost of doing nothing is only about $2 billion less than the cost of doing everything including, included in that is upgrading the road north as well, which um, they'll have to do anyhow. And even if you didn't connect the port to the um, rail link, and bearing in mind there are no other significant mm. ports in the, in the Pacific that aren't connected to a railhead, um, you'd, you'd under pressure to do that because there's a hell of a lot of growth and exports coming out of Northland and already the 30,000 containers that are trucked to Auckland and then um, railed to Tauranga to earn foreign exchange. Well, that's dumb. Will imports cost more for Aucklanders? No, no definitely not. Currently, um, Auckland port is leaking business to Tauranga. Uh, over 30% in growing of Auckland's imports come via Tauranga and they're all sold at exactly the same price in the shops here. What, what about for, for big ticket items? What about one of those cars that we see on the Auckland waterfront at the moment? Well, <laughs> well they're not that big ticket as they used to be of course but the, um, the representative, we spent a lot of time listening to everybody and the representative of the industry said that that might cost another $100. Well, if you go into a shop and buy one, they offer you $5,000 off if you, look for the, if you look like you can pay for it. So, um, and we don't even think it'll be that because, in fact, the cost of, of storage and the cost of servicing will go down as those industries possibly migrate to cheaper land and, uh, at Ruakaka around Marsden Point. This is driven by land value, the whole thing, really. Auckland at the moment is considering a future where a large part of its board operation will turn to automation, but how many jobs in this proposal would be lost in Auckland and how many jobs would be created in Northland? Well, there's jobs directly associated with the wharf and the, and the port of Auckland have spent huge sums getting rid of not that many jobs um, and that doesn't look all that sensible and the um, automation thing is a great promise. It hasn't delivered as much as expected elsewhere anyhow. Um, the saving isn't in that. The saving is in re reveal, releasing highly valuable land for higher value incomes, much the same as happened at, at um, Britomart and at the Western Viaduct. Um, and there'll be quite a lot of migration of low value um, uh, low salaried jobs possibly up to Ruakaka but at the moment it's very hard for those people to actually afford to live in Auckland. They can afford to buy a house on those salaries up there and so uh, Auckland's a bit like Queenstown. You go to Queenstown you want someone to serve you a, a coffee and a beer but those people can't afford to live there. The people who are fixing cars can't afford to live here as easily as they will be up there either. I know one of the concerns that Auckland Mayor Phil Goff has is that Aucklanders won't be compensated. If the port's operations move north, he says there should be some sort of compensation for Aucklanders. Why shouldn't they be compensated? Well, basically, when someone does something that takes moves, which dramatically increase the value of your asset, you don't usually compensate them. In fact, quite often you can make a case for sharing in the betterment, but we're certainly not suggesting that in this case. Basically, um, this avoids a whole lot of money being spent to fix problems that exist now, getting the stuff in and out of the out of the port in Auckland, and if you did spend that, bearing in mind that even the, the um, council's own report mm. said the thing would shut in 30 years, although the shipping industry tell us that seven years is about when it's got to be shifted. It's not going to stop work, working for them. But any money you send fixing fixing problems around the port now is lost money. But here's the thing: you can't you can't get rid of a port 
build restaurants, bars, retail options, hotels, whatever you want to put in that prime space, you can't do that overnight. It takes a long time to develop those properties and there's a huge amount of money being lost in that period. Well, not, well, not necessarily because we're talking about the managed transfer. There are some things that move quite easily. The, the cars could, could shift the moment the, uh, the council said that they've got to get a resource consent because they, they look too ugly, um, they'd have to go north. And uh, because you can take them ashore, mm. take them ashore at the port up there now. That, that, there's nothing required special for that. Um, in terms of the other, but you'd migrate in parts of it as you go. But if, as long as it's quite clear that that was what we were going to do, mm. it puts us it puts us a country in a better position to actually negotiate with the shipping lines. Because at the moment, the shipping lines are exploiting the supposed competition between the ports. More, more decisions about what comes in and out of New Zealand, where it goes, is made in the boardrooms in Copenhagen than is made here. I want to come back to that first line I brought up again. You said the Port of Auckland is no longer environmentally viable. I see a 2017 study by Enviromark found that moving cars and car imports to Northport would increase carbon emissions by more than 21,000 tonnes a year. That's just for cars. That's not all freight. So, so that... Can't I be a good I don't, well, I just don't believe that actually, because basically we're looking to have things put on rail for a starter. And uh, if you take trucks off the road and put them on rail, it's the simplest and easiest way, even better than electric cars, to actually reduce those things. And the other part about environmental is that there is no need for any dredging up north. They can already already get no dredging whatsoever. No, they don't. Suez Max boats are coming in there now. People forget that's where our, our fuel comes in at Marsden Point. It's a big port for fuel already. You stand by that. Absolutely no need for dredging at any point up north. Oh, there might be some small stuff, but it's just it's sand up there. It's not. The ports of Auckland need to dig out, blast out, two million cubic metres of rock uh, from the channel um, north of North Head out through past mm. Rangitoto. Uh, and that's completely unnecessary. So you say this is good for Auckland. You say this is good for Northland. Is this good for New Zealand? Well, I, I think it... It is definitely good for New Zealand. What we've got is um, a situation where it's actually easier to import into New Zealand than export. And um, you've got to remember that if you don't export, you can't pay for Auckland. But, but if taxpayers are paying that, say, $2 billion bill for the, for the road and rail upgrade between Auckland and Northland, what does someone in Christchurch get out of this? Well, let's, go, let's think about someone in, in Tauranga. Tauranga is held up to be an excellent port and it is well managed. But Tauranga, is li li Tauranga Port exists on the basis mm. of $4 billion worth of rail and Kaimai Tunnel that the taxpayers funded. Um, and there's no question that, that Northland's um, less than perfect mm. economic um, performance hasn't been helped by the complete lack of decent roads and lack of any form of rail that's still working. So, and they will have to be done. That's probably where a lot of our export growth is going to come from. I know when people consider this report, once it is publicly published, will consider your credentials. You didn't want to be introduced as the former Mayor of Northland tonight, and I know a lot of people have talked about your links with New Zealand First. I don't have any links with New Zealand First other than that I know people in it, but you know, I knew I've been appointed by both Labor and National in the past to fix, predominantly to fix messes in infrastructure in Auckland. I mean, the power went off in Auckland and it did make itself internationally famous. I was brought in to chair Vector back to health and, and mm. profitability. When the Auckland Hospital was in trouble, I was brought in to finish that job and get it back on time and on budget, which I did. I predicted there'd be a failure at, um, 
at Penrose, mm. a transparent, so I was brought in to fix that as well. And so um, I have a good track record in infrastructure. I, I was also a mayor for a period up there, and but that was probably the least important thing I ever did, and it was during the... Um, <laughs> we won't tell the people of North on that, I'm sure, Wayne. <laughs> oh, well, I don't know. Not going, not going for another term in office. Thank you very no, much. We have, to, we have to leave our time there uh, this evening. Wayne Brown is the chair of the Upper North Island Supply Chain Strategy. As per that final report delivered to ministers, uh, we understand uh, the report recommends they give Auckland Port and North Port a year to sort out their commercial plan and if they can't sort it out within that time period, the government should introduce new legislation to force it through. We expect it to go to Cabinet before Christmas. Up next on Q&A, radical reforms were proposed for our education system, but information we've received suggests the government is rejecting some key recommendations. So what will happen to our schools? Then later, is the active ingredient in weed killers such as Roundup also in our food? and the great Boomer debate. Your thoughts on that headline-making moment from a non-Boomer MP. Plus, porn is everywhere, and it's really easy for kids to see. So, should access be regulated? And what would that mean for adults who want to view it? Kia ora te welcome back. The long wait for changes to tomorrow's schools will come out tomorrow. The report has been sitting with Education Minister Chris Hipkins since July, but we understand after much consultation some of the major recommendations won't be picked up. Proposed regional hubs, we understand, have been scrapped. Pegging principles to five-year tenures, we understand, has been scrapped. However, we also understand some change is coming to the zoning and enrolment capping system. Jack Boyle is president of the PPTA and is with us this morning, tēnā, this evening. Tēnā koe, welcome to Q&A. Tēnā koe. Do we need radical change in our education system? Yeah, so what we've seen over the last sort of 30 odd years in education is um, if you drop change in and you don't get the buy-in from the sector, it doesn't go particularly well if it goes at all. These proposals are radical though? Yeah, so the Our Schooling Futures report, there, there were some radical proposals, a lot of really good stuff, but the proposal for governance hubs um, didn't land particularly well. There were quite a few people saying unnecessary. We've got a system that has delivered really well for about 80% of learners and um, changing everything so that we can focus on those 20% was sort of the hub proposal and I, I guess you'll see a more measured, more phased, more pragmatic approach is what I'm expecting if hubs are gone and we've been hearing that they are. I've got a quote here from you from, from a wee while back. We support yeah. many aspects of the report and are especially interested in working with the government to develop the hub concept. So you're yeah. a hub supporter. We were uh, really interested in, in looking at how that sort of mid-tier management of schools mm. might work. Um, once we got into some of the details, it, it started to look a bit more problematic. Well, what were the details? Um, so, one, when you've got a school that's been doing really, really well, and 80% and of our schools have, um, do you need to change everything, remove some of that autonomy, and have like a, a, a group above them who are making decisions? Mm. That was sort of um, what a lot of principals and, and, in fact, a number of teachers were saying, not really sure if there's a case for that. What we do know, and what we've known for a long time, is that we need to focus on that 20% who've been underserved. So what there's did the 20% say, Did the 20% say, we, need, we want autonomy, we want to be in 
charge? Or did the 20% say, you know what, we could do with some more help here? That's exactly what they've been saying. They've been saying it for ages. They're saying, look, we are unable to access support. We have got entrenched, quite often socio-economic mm. challenges that the resourcing is simply not meeting and we can't find so support. So would helps have supported those schools, hubs have supported those schools? Well, it's a hypothetical now because what we've been hearing for a few months is um, that hubs are gone and um, when the report mm. comes out tomorrow, I'd, I'd be willing to put money on the fact that they are gone and if they are gone and we want to move away from a competitive model of schooling where, you know, some will win but if someone's winning, someone else is losing and that's what we've seen over the last 30 years, mm. then they're going to have to look at voluntary options for collaboration. So I'd say kahuyako or communities of schools. Right. I'd say probably getting Ministry of Education to do some more of the service delivery and maybe even having more full service schools. So your school might have mental health support, access to counselling, nurses and, and that is sort of shared across those communities have been missing out. I want to get into that disparity a little more in a moment. Mm. Does the current Boards of Trustees model serve our education system as a whole or do boards of trustees have too much power? Yes, yeah, so there's some variability around the level of service. Um, what we saw under the national government, um, ironically, was they were saying, hey, look, we might want to outsource some of the functions for, for boards, like property. I imagine that'll probably still be in there. That was in the Our Schooling Futures report as well. So if you haven't got the capacity as a board to um, manage the property, then having somebody else being able to do that so that you can focus on the learning, that's probably going to be helpful. But no board wants to give up any power, right? Well, I don't know if no board wants to give up any power. I think if you've got a, a whole pile of obligations and they're ultimately about making the best opportunities for the learners who attend that school, then having to spend, you know, hours and hours on what sort of paint job you're going to do and whether or not you need to put in some, some astroturf, it's probably not going to be the most important thing but for the them. the Boards of Trustees model comes back to your, to your other point about the disparities between mm. schools that have access to resources and schools that have access to Boards of Trustees with experience in governance or parents who are, you know, who are partners in legal firms yep. or, or the heads of PwC or whatever versus the schools that don't have those sorts of opportunities. Absolutely. And so there have been some variability. There has been some variability for some of those boards and that's probably added to the fact that some schools have been unable to meet the needs of their learners. Insufficient resourcing, insufficient experience at the governance level, probably some challenges around accessing support for the mm. teachers and the leaders in the school. It's a hell of a hard job. We need to support teaching, we need to support leadership, we need to support good governance decisions and if you can clear away some of the things that boards are currently expected to do so they can focus on what learners need, that's got to be an improvement. Should boards appoint principals? Yeah, I don't know about that one because Ultimately, under the Tomorrow's Schools model, that's sort of been one of the, one of the really good things. And I think that, by and large, it, it has worked pretty well. But I wonder if we probably need to do a bit more around identifying leaders mm. before a board has got a decision about who's going to be the leader for this school, who's going to fit just right. And we haven't got a, a very clear pathway into leadership, unfortunately. I know this is a complex subject, but, but it's interesting to consider the debate around these proposals over the last few months. Mm. And it does feel like we have been stuck in a bit of a dichotomy, right? Is it better to have an education system that, that lifts the worst performing schools, yep. for want of a better term, and creates more equality across the board at the expense of the best performing schools? Or is it better to have a system that gives schools more autonomy, more independence, knowing that there will be winners and losers? Is that 
too simple a way to describe this debate? No, I think that really touches on what the, the dichotomy has been for the last 30 years. And I think that the second of your two options is preferable because for 30 odd years, those schools that haven't had sufficient sort of access to support, they might not have had the best governance and they may have um, an unfortunate sort of consequence of free movement across whatever mm. school you like, that those ones, those learners without choice, unable to exercise choice, are left in schools that are half empty, that haven't got enough money, that aren't getting supported. Mm. So we can't perpetuate a system where 20% fail. But that's essentially what, what, from the changes that we understand are coming through, that's essentially what is happening. We are essentially keeping the status quo with a few little added in bits and pieces. Yeah, I, what I would, I, I wouldn't expect that. What I would anticipate is that the focus on those 20%, rather than having a governance hub to ensure that mm. they get a better shake, you'll probably see a suite of things. One of them will be the kahuiako, so schools working together and collaborating instead of com competing. The other thing will probably be, and it's sort of collateral at the moment, is the changes to funding. So at the moment, the decile funding, mm. which is meant to compensate for socioeconomic disadvantage, it's 250 schools. Mm. Whichever the 250 schools with the lowest um, income mm. and overcrowding, they are the ones who are getting that additional getting funding, additional and it's funding. insufficient. Yeah. And actually, every census, a third of the schools but go up a decile, a third of them go it, down, and it's not about the kids. It's, it's about where the school's located. It's these changes in, in, in zoning and capping school numbers. Yeah. And, and it, isn't, it isn't necessarily a mandated cap on out-of-zone students, is it? But, but if the government were to introduce something like, is it Kahuyako, yeah. where essentially schools agree to having a voluntary cap, so they have to take all of their in-zone students yeah. and then they will be limited to taking certain numbers of out-of-zone students. Is that a reasonable expectation tomorrow? Oh, look, I really hope so. It makes a hell of a lot of sense because you need to have role stability. You need to have certainty around your funding so that you can do the best for children. And if you don't have a zone, or unfortunately, as it happens um, on some occasions, where the board might mm. choose the boundaries of their zone to exclude mm. certain communities or certain learners, then that, that entrenched disadvantage continues. This is something, essentially the program they've introduced at schools in Ōtautahi in, in Christchurch yep. post-earthquakes. Would that be sufficient in lifting the bottom 20% of schools? Um, so, one, the collaboration rather than competition. Two, the increased investment based on the need rather than sort of using decile as a, as a mm. you know, a reason to fund some schools and some communities. Um, better data use, so if you can identify the level of need at a school, resource it mm. and collaborate so that you're you know, socialising really good practices. Is this transformational change, Jay? Is this um, radical? It will be transformational over a period of time. It's certainly not radical and I'm, I'm quite pleased that it's not radical because if you've got very little buy-in, if you've got people trying to, mm. trying to give the model a kicking rather than focusing on making it work to the betterment of all, then, then you're probably wasting a bit of time. So doing things slowly, taking the sector with them, trying things out and building on success is probably going to be the better way to go. Is the government going to be applauded by schools tomorrow? Um, I certainly think that the principals who are no longer looking at a, a limited tenure will, will be happy about that. I'd imagine that having a focus on those 20% of schools by having 
collaboration, better resourcing, and the ability for boards to outsource some of the things they haven't got capacity in, those are all going to be steps in the right direction. So um, I'm, I'm hopeful that um, when the report comes out, one, um, some of my guesses are proven true, but also that, that the system, you know, schools, boards, parents say, yeah, I can see that this is going to improve the lot of those communities where the schooling has not been able to deliver. Tēnā koe. Jack Boyle, thanks for your time. Let's see what Jenny has planned for us on tonight. Thanks, Jack. Tonight, a jury hears tearful testimonies from women who went on dates with the man accused of Grace Mullane's murder. The latest on demonstrations in Hong Kong after a video of police shooting a protest that was streamed online. Crews battling huge wildfires across the ditch prepare for conditions to get even worse tomorrow. Plus, the votes are in for 2019's Bird of the Year, who waddled into the top spot. Go the Kedadu. Join us for all that and tomorrow's weather at 10.30. It was the hoi hoi. That's what I learned today. Hoi hoi. It's the word for horse in Te Reo Māori. Apparently it's also the word for penguin. <laughs> Leads to some confusing things, doesn't it? Send us your thoughts. We're on uh, Twitter at NZQ&A. You can email us at Q&A at tvnz.co.nz. Don't forget we've got the Q&A podcast as well. We podcast the show. Get that wherever you get your podcasts. Next, the startling details on the huge numbers of Kiwi kids looking at online porn. We're between 40 and 88% of porn is aggressive. Uh, so that would be choking, hitting, slapping, hair pulling. Elder, welcome back. The Principal Youth Court judge says sexual offending by young people is being influenced by the easy access to extreme online pornography. His comments come as Children's Minister Tracy Martin considers new legislation around access to online porn. Joe Robertson is the lead researcher for The Light Project, a charitable trust set up to help communities navigate the porn environment. She's also a sex therapist and a warning. This interview is an eye-opener, but it involves adult themes and language. I started by asking Joe how the way in which people access porn has changed. So if you think um, back to Playboy, which lots of adults do think of as kind of mainstream porn and when they were growing up, uh, so that was you bought it at a magazine shop um, or you found it under dad's bed or something like that. But Playboy, you know, was at its peak around 1972 and it had 7 million subscribers a year. And now Pornhub, which is only the second most popular site, so not the most popular, but they released their own data, which is quite interesting, and they have 92 million views a day. Wow. Mm. How different is the pornography that is accessed through sites like Pornhub to what people might identify as pornography typical of Playboy? Yeah, um, you know, we do see this huge discrepancy in terms of what adults think of as porn and what young people think of as porn. Um, so we think of uh, static images or, you know, what was in Video Easy, so which is just like one video, it might be like a 30-minute video. Um, it's got a narrative, like a plot, there's a plumber. <laughs> there's a babysitter, uh, but they have lines and there's kind of, you're following uh, also character development, right. um, but with sexually explicit content. Whereas now you're looking at short bursts of videos, um, which are often aggressive um, or violent, uh, almost always demeaning to women. Um, with really problematic themes and there's no character development. It's like a five-minute scene just of sexual acts and most commonly just of what the woman is doing. 
Can you just go into a bit more detail there? And I'm aware this is a sensitive subject, but mm. what do you mean when you say you know, aggressive yeah. examples or violent? So uh, there's not heaps of research in terms of content analysis, but what we do have over the last 10 years shows that anywhere between 40 and 88% of porn is aggressive. Uh, so that would be choking, hitting, slapping, hair pulling, um, yeah, anything along those lines. But also calling them names, bitches, sluts, whores, uh, that's very common language. And some of the themes you consider problematic as well. Yeah, we're seeing a real increase, I would say, um, in family sex. So that is brother, sister, daddy, daughter, mother, son. Uh, so, for example, about a month ago, we did an analysis of Pornhub's recommended videos, just an informal analysis. So they're in their recommended videos, 60% of those were of family sex. Are we talking about incest here? Yeah. Yeah, and it's not, I think, you know, adults think of this as like, this is in the deep dark web, like mm. this is somewhere where it's hard to find, mm. it's, you know, um, maybe even it's not accessible um, w without knowing the exact website. It's not like that, like it's on the homepage, it's in the recommended videos, you know, you could whip out your phone now and within two clicks could be on forced sex. And if I'm doing that, theoretically, a 10-year-old could be doing that. Definitely, and, and not on purpose. You know, they're not being bad kids. They're not searching out stuff, you mm. know, that we think, well, why would you even be looking for that? It's by accident. They're coming across it because it's so easy to come across. They are coming across it by accident. But, but I mean, is that because children are, are Googling sex or are Googling porn or something like that? So when you say by accident, they are coming across it through curiosity, if nothing else? Not necessarily. So there is that element. Um, but 44% of New Zealand young people mm. came across porn on a non-porn site. So they weren't on a porn site. They weren't even necessarily saying what is sex. Mm. They were on a streaming site. They were on a game. They were on YouTube. They, and then there was an advert. It asked them to click through. So they weren't necessarily even looking for any sexual content. So, so say hypothetically a child comes across a site such as Pornhub, they are immediately presented with the recommended videos. Mm. Those recommended videos have incredibly problematic themes such as family sex. Who decides on those recommended videos or is it an algorithm at play? Um, I don't know. I mean, there hasn't been huge analysis on the industry. Mm. Uh, it's like a tech beast, you know. Mm. How do they make all that happen? How do the calculations work, the algorithms? Uh, we're over the summer going to hopefully do a bit of a deep dive into mm. understanding that. Um, but it's user-generated content, so there's not a porn site creating content and putting it on their mm. site. It's people at home, in their lounges, in their bedrooms, creating their own content and uploading it. And can, can you just give us an example of, like, I really want to impress upon people how extreme some of the stuff is. Can you give us an yeah. example of the sort of thing that a young person might be presented with on this, on this website? Yeah, I mean, we try to get uh, an understanding of what an organic mm. kind of um, experience of a site like Pornhub might be. Um, so you'll come across scenes that are um, called mum son after husband dies um, or you know MILF blackmailed into sex um, or you'll see an advert um, on the gay male porn category uh, that I came across came across which said obedient slave boys used like property 
What does this do to our young people? A lot of things. Um, it confuses them. Uh, I think first and foremost they're really confused because they see content and that might contradict what they hear in school or they might not be hearing anything in school anyway, um, but they don't have any adults to talk with. So not that many adults are bringing it up with them. So they're really confused. Like, how can I be aroused by content and disturbed by it at the same time? Mm. And we need to normalise that for them. Is this how they learn about sex? It is a one of their primary sex educators. Are boys affected more than girls? Um, it is a slightly gendered issue in that more boys consume pornography than girls, but we know that the impacts can be the same. I'll give you an example. So um, we know that of young people who consume porn, they're more likely to hold sexist stereotypes, so seeing girls as sex objects. We see that impact in both males and females. So girls saying things like, oh, I don't think sex is for me. It's for him. I just do what he wants or sex is going to be painful for me, or he is going to pressure me, he's going to push past my boundaries, and that is just normal. And so they say those things of themselves as well. You are a sex therapist as well. Yeah. Do, do you meet people who are, have suffering ongoing damage from this sort of exposure? Definitely. I mean, we have a massive issue with sexual violence in this country, um, but you cannot talk about sexual violence without talking about porn. You cannot see the rates uh, of which young people consume porn and not go, hey, this is going to have a massive impact on how they see consent, on how they see gender, mm. risky sex, aggression, how to just have sex. They, I mean, it's huge. So what do we do? Um, well, you know, the Office of Film and Literature Classification, they're the ones who did the research yeah. last year on young people. The, the census office. The census office, yeah. yeah. And so they put it down to... About five things, I think. So tools and information, education for young people, uh, some regulation, macro-level kind of government regulation, but then also further research. What would you like to see in the regulation space? Um, I would like to, to explore age verification, like what the UK has introduced. Um, I don't know if there's like a really amazing way to do that, but I'd like to at least explore The UK it. had some, some issues with it, though, didn't they? They, they had some technical problems and then it, it fell by the wayside in, yeah. in some way. But you think that that could be feasible in New Zealand? I think so. Um, I think we could at least talk about it more. Mm. Um, I think we could definitely introduce what we call porn literacy into the sex education curriculum. There's no conversation about porn at the, at the moment in the sex education curriculum. We're waiting uh, to hear the recommendations from the Minister, Tracy Martin. I know the Chief Censor has thrown his weight behind greater regulation in the space, but for parents who are watching this now, freaking out, yeah. uh, what should they do and when should they be having conversations with their children about pornography? There are massive components that we can do, you know, really significant work, which is talking to them. You know, actually having conversations with young people. Uh, so not just trying to filter what they see, but preparing them for when they go to school and a friend shows them something. Because at some point, yeah. it doesn't matter how tightly you monitor that Wi-Fi password. Exactly. They leave your front gate. They walk out the door. So you could put a filter on their phone. Absolutely. I mean, I'm not saying don't do that. But you need to really talk to them. At what age? Well, I usually say, um, just as a general blanket, you need to talk to boys around 10 and girls around 12. Wow. Thank you so much for your time, Jo. Thank you. That is Jo Robertson. We know this is a difficult conversation for many people to consider having, so we will make sure we put that clip up on our Facebook page. Just search NZQ&A on Facebook.
We wanted to know whether porn-related incidents are presenting in the justice system, given Joe's concerns. This is what the acting principal youth court judge, Judge Tony Fitzgerald, told us today. My impression is that sexual offending by teenage boys in particular often seems to follow from them having viewed extreme pornography in an unrestricted environment. It appears as though they come to view that material as representing normal sexual behaviour and then act out their fantasies on the victim of their offending who are often vulnerable children and young people close to them. The problem seems to be growing, though it may not be captured in the way statistics are recorded. After the break on Q&A, our reporter Fina Ohoan investigates the herbicide glyphosate, the active ingredient in Roundup. How widespread is its use and is it a health risk? Regulatory authorities have reviewed and re-reviewed glyphosate and have consistently concluded that it does not cause cancer. While debate rages in Europe and the United States about the controversial herbicide glyphosate, the active ingredient in weed killers such as Roundup, those wanting it banned here say Aotearoa is lagging behind. Reporter Fina Owen investigated the extent of its use and more importantly, whether glyphosate presents a health risk. Drive around rural New Zealand in October-November and you'll see fields of gold. Kind of pretty, but the reason they're that colour is that they've been sprayed with the herbicide glyphosate. So we sprayed this paddock about five days ago. Mick and Karen Williams' Wairarapa property is one of hundreds of arable farms dependent on glyphosate. And then I came in yesterday and we've direct drilled that into a brassica for um, summer feed for livestock. The fields beyond have been sprayed and seeded earlier with wheat and barley. Glyphosate is simply the poster boy for the whole raft of biocides that we have been lulled into believing are safe and needed by agriculture. That's simply not the case. Having trained in soil science, longtime Hawke's Bay farmer Phyllis Tichenen is now a soil consultant and is one of many in the organic sphere wanting New Zealand to get in line with thinking overseas about possible human health risks with using glyphosate. What do we want? No poison! Overseas, most of the anti-glyphosate protest has been targeted at its urban use by councils and individuals. Lawsuits against Bayer, the makers of Roundup, are piling up, now at 47,000, brought to them by Americans alleging a link with cancer. Bayer is sticking to its position. Regulatory authorities have reviewed and re-reviewed glyphosate and have consistently concluded that it does not cause cancer. The World Health Organization's official line on glyphosate is that it's probably carcinogenic. But the EPA in the States and here say there is no risk to human health. The Ministry of Primary Industries is responsible for monitoring ag chem levels in our food. So the International Agency for Research on Cancer said glyphosate is a potential carcinogen. However, they didn't associate that to any risk from what levels are in food. Environmental Protection Authority New Zealand runs a robust process. They've looked at all the science, they've looked at the evidence, and they have based that it is safe to use provided you have 
all the measures, you know, the, the personal protective equipment, you stay on label and you use as directed. More and more countries are limiting the use of glyphosate. Austria and Thailand has banned all use of it. Other countries like Germany, France and Italy are moving to ban its municipal and individual use. But with arable farming's reliance on glyphosate, it's proving to be much more difficult for governments to ban the chemical in food production. Look, for us on farm, it would mean we'd go back to cultivation. Apart from the possible downstream cost to consumers, the Williams insist that tilling the soil is not as environmentally friendly as using glyphosate. So that would mean we'd you know, be multiple passes um, and hence increase, huge increase in our fossil fuel use. Further down the valley, near Featherston, Claire Bleakley is trying to run a small organic farm. Her community has noticed an increase in the use of glyphosate on farmland and wonder about its health effects. The wind takes the dust, which is full of glyphosate, and blows it around our community. We do get spray drift, and in that spray drift we had to take a field out of organic certification. So it has affected us economically. I observe it regularly, sheep being put back on paddocks. Basically, if you see animals out on an orange, dead-looking paddock, they are consuming glyphosate residues. In MPI's last survey of glyphosate residue in food, 20 of the 60 wheat samples taken were over the maximum allowable residue level. We didn't find anything of food safety concern, but we did find a few levels higher than we expected, so a, a few um, above those maximum residue levels. Okay, you say a few, but it's about a third of what you tested, is that right? Uh, yes, it is, yep. But MPI has no plans to continue its wheat testing regime. There's really no food safety concern there. Someone would have to be eating uh, 14 kilograms of a wheat-based food a day before they're actually meeting uh, the World Health Organization health guidance values for glyphosate. The regulators have really let us down. They should be monitoring. We have the monitoring they've done, glyphosate has got into our groundwater and into our food. And if we do not address the toxicity of it, we are going to have real problems. What we need to continue to do is invest in the future and think about, OK, if, if glyphosate is, is determined um, to not be appropriate going forward, then what do we next have? Get real about this. We will be required to document residues very soon. And we need to get ahead of the ball on this because otherwise we're going to crash our reputation internationally. Fina Owen with that report. Up next on Q&A, Chloe Swarbrick's OK Boomer comment made headlines around the world. The average age of this 52nd parliament is 49 years old. OK Boomer. We asked if you thought Boomer was an insult and we received a forceful response. Your feedback after the break. No my hawkey my. So, it turns out many of you have an opinion on Green MP Chloe Swarbrick using the expression OK Boomer in Parliament. We asked on Facebook if it was an insult and here's a selection of your responses. Dylan Walls says, quote, she was heckled by an opposition MP who was discrediting what she was saying quite disrespectfully and she responded without losing a beat. It was brilliant. 
Tim Shepard, who describes himself as an ageing boomer and not a green supporter, also felt it was fine. He posted, I heard this as a quick-witted, gentle tease or quip, not at all offensive in the circumstances, whereas Robin Thompson felt it's an insult. She says, quote, Maybe not the nastiest one and certainly not the cleverest, but it is a put-down. Pretty disappointed with Chloe about it. TBH. I wouldn't find it offensive at all, says Tim Kerwin. However, flip the tables and there would be an uproar about ageism. And finally, Lysanne Fraser believes, quote, that behaviour would not be tolerated in a workplace. I'm disappointed it is with our lawmakers. I must confess to... Um, have done having <laughs> having done a little boomer baiting over the weekend myself. Sorry for that. That's Q and A for this week. Tonight is up next. Thanks for watching. And now mihi nui monga karere. Thanks for your contributions. Thanks to the Q and A team. Hey Tiara Wiki. We'll see you next Monday at 9:30. Q and A is made with the support of New Zealand on here.